Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Basically bizarre behavior, like ordering aides to track down a special scented moisturizer from the Ritz Hotel, as well as his pursuit of a discount used Trump Hotel mattress. These are real things I'm saying. Pruitt, in many ways, was sort of like President Trump, even though he didn't have the great wealth of President Trump. Pruitt's ouster is an unbelievable development in that he lasted this long. Well, Scott Pruitt is doing a great job within the walls of the EPA. I mean, we're setting records. So Trump always sort of seemed to sort of be in his <laughs> camp, even though the things he was doing were so hard to justify. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So we lost another noble soldier in the battle to corrupt this entire once great nation with sepsis. Spare a thought today for fallen Scott Pruitt, former head of the Environmental Protection Agency, who resigned yesterday. He gave the fight for corruption all he had. Delusional climate denier, hater of women and gays, taker of money from giant fossil fuel companies. He went much further into sin on a practical level. Let's review. As of last month, he was under at least 14 separate federal investigations by the Government Accountability Office. And for someone so principled when it comes to uterine happenings, Pruitt held himself to a considerably lower standard. He rented a D.C. condo at bargain basement rates from a lobbyist whose clients were regulated by the EPA. That looks a hell of a lot like a bribe. Pruitt also gave weird, unjustified raises to his pals and spared them conflict of interest pledges. He also proposed spending $100,000 a month on a charter aircraft membership, and he longed for a $43,000 phone booth. He also had the EPA regularly swept for bugs in his office and installed biometric locks on his office doors at a cost of around $9,000. He tried to set his wife up with a huge order from Chick-fil-A or maybe a whole Chick-fil-A franchise, and he did some creepy Trumpish favors for his daughter. Pruitt also used agency staff to run errands for him, such as, I hate this part, buying a mattress for his, quote, personal use and getting him his favorite moisturizer. Almost as soon as he arrived at the EPA, he asked his security detail to use flashing lights and sirens when they were stuck in D.C. traffic. Super heroic form of entitlement. And so a wholesome public servant, our Scott Pruitt, rolling up his sleeves, working hard to protect the environment, and hard for the American people. Good riddance, Pruitt. I hope to God you're not the next attorney general. Today's topic on Trumpcast is South Africa. My guest, Andres Dutoy, is an academic and activist in Cape Town. He was part of the resistance to apartheid beginning when he was a child in the 60s and 70s. Later, as an historian, he traced the origins of apartheid and the rise of the National Party, which, yes, he likens to the rise of Trumpism in the United States. It's an extraordinary story he tells and a suggestive one, but as he himself says, historical analogies are always imperfect. I'll be back with Andres in just a minute.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Joining me on the line is Andreas Dutoy. He's a researcher and writer at the University of Western Cape in South Africa. He's also the director of PLOS, which studies poverty, inequality, and social justice in Southern Africa. Welcome, Andres. It's a pleasure. As you know, you came to my attention when I saw a thread you did on Twitter about analogies that I hadn't heard spelled out between the situation in the United States, and the rise of apartheid in South Africa. And it was very striking. You know, we've, we've heard a lot of um, comparisons and templates on this show put forth from 20th century Europe. And yep. um, those are so freighted. And they're also uh, longer ago than apartheid, which is in my memory. And mm-hmm. also... You know, South Africa is a is an English-speaking, partly English-speaking former colony. Why don't you spell out the, the analogy? And I know you were very tentative with making historical analogies, but why yes. don't you spell out the analogy that you, ha- you put forth in this thread? Yeah, well, I suppose um, what came to mind for me in this thread, what, uh, this was just after the resignation of your Supreme Court Judge Kennedy. I was trying to sort of give voice to my own quite uneasy sense, which I've had for the last year and a half, really, about what I find quite worrying about what's happening in the United States at the moment. Now, now I'm, I'm not talking about a period that I was part of. I was only born in the 1960s. But uh, my, under, my postgraduate research as a, a student of history was looking at the South African uh, 1940s and 1950s. And uh, it was very interesting for me to to see how many echoes there were between what between what I was seeing, what I'm seeing in the United States right now, and my experience of of going back to the archives and reading the the newspapers of the the progressive opinion and uh, enlightened and liberal opinion as they unfolded from 1945 onwards. I don't know how much your listeners know about South African history, and, and it's it's very difficult to condense all of this into sound bites, but I can try to sort of capture some of it. Yeah, maybe maybe you know this point you had about the about the mainstream press in the 40s and 50s that that what you saw in that were you say people sleepwalking into a battlefield and yeah. i think of leon vessels who you know a member of the the national party who during the apartheid years one of the few afrikaner politicians who who publicly apologized for his role and he talked about his deafness 
to the crying and laughter of South Africans during apartheid. And he said, I'm sorry I've been so hard of hearing for so long. So I think of the sleepwalking and the deafness yeah. as maybe this, two components. Uh, actually, yeah. If I, if I may, I, I want if I can sketch to you a little bit about what I think was going on in South Africa in the 1940s. Yes. And then what happened in the 1950s. South Africa in the 1940s was very much a, a colonial and white supremacist society. It was a welfare state for whites. And it was a society in which black people and African people were, were seen as mostly being tribal. They lived in the rural areas. They had nothing to do or supposedly have very, had very little to do with, with white civilization. They didn't belong in the, in the towns. The equivalent of Jim Crow legislation, they had very limited political rights. Um, uh, but if you go to the 1940s, what, what's interesting about South Africa is that it was a time in which progressives and liberals had a very strong sense that history was, was on the move. There was a lot of optimism. And at the same time, there was a sense that progress was coming to South Africa, very much brought by capitalism. The Second World War, a period in which large numbers of black people and African people had streamed into the cities and had become factory workers. They had actually demanded labor rights. They'd gone on strike. And they were, they were strong movements to grant workers' rights to African workers as well, to grant them unemployment insurance. So there was a sense that in South Africa, uh, economic progress would bring about social integration and that in a way uh, you you it was a very simple choice you either had to get with the program or or to resist it and what what nobody saw coming was a kind of backlash of conservative white resistance you might say it was born of uh, white economic anxiety poor uh, white afrikaners mostly from the rural people who felt threatened by any kind of talk of, of integration or equality or democracy or any kind of extension of equal rights to, to workers. Mm -hmm. That's really what apartheid was. Apartheid was, in a way, the white population doubling down on white supremacy at a historical moment at which it seemed that some kind of demographic process might be pushing it back. So that is one of the places where there's uh, some interesting resonances. With yes, not unlike during the Obama, Obama years, the feeling that racism was in decline and that um, there were all of a sudden new, even unbelievable opportunities for people of color in the United States and that we had almost vanquished racism. Of course, that wasn't true. And that there would be a demographic dividend on which the Democratic Party could could bargain, um, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, so, so I think people underestimated the seriousness of the backlash that came. It was very much seen as a as a glitch, and as I pointed out in my uh, rant on Twitter, the National Party victory also seemed like a electoral glitch. Only thirty seven percent of voters voted for the National Party in nineteen forty eight. They only managed to construct a parliamentary majority by entering into an alliance with another party, the Afrikaner Party. But it seemed quite electorally tenuous. And they had this mad policy apartheid, which, which nobody really thought was anything serious. It seemed to be some kind of attempt to hold on to the past. 
And the glitch, sorry, sorry it's, it tell, explain a little bit more of the glitch and the, and the Afrikaner party, because it is interesting to see how also politically and procedurally there's disarray that precedes, uh, yeah. you know, we always think that there's economic chaos, like Weimar, that gives rise to fascism. But in some cases, it's that, you know, in our country, so much gerrymandering and the elect confusion, confusion of the Electoral College, you yeah. end up with minority rule. Yeah, the, the South Africa was actually in a time of relative prosperity. It was not like the Weimar Republic, mm-hmm. but, but rural whites felt anxious. And the way in which our um, parliamentary seats were calculated, much like your electoral colleges, gave much more weight to the rural areas. Mm-hmm. So even though the National Party didn't have a majority of votes, they got the majority of seats. Um, the United Party was convinced that it would be able to win back power in the next election, which, which would be 1953. But I think this is really the second interesting thing for me is that the United Party was 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 never able to mount um, convincing fight back against apartheid. Um, it, it was never able to put clear blue water between itself and the National Party mm. because the 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 dreadful truth is that the United Party, at the end of the day, was also a party for white supremacy. It just mm. wanted kinder, gentler white supremacy. And there was a sort of a critical exchange between the leader of the National Party, B.F. Malan, and the former prime minister, who was now the leader of the opposition, General Smuts, in which Malan said to Smuts, well, come on, admit it, you also stand for apartheid. You're just not as honest and as forthright about it as and Smuts had to admit it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. in a way, the United Party was was unable to say, actually, if we are at a crossroads, we have to forego white supremacy altogether, and we have to go, go all out and say, we are for racial equality. General Smuts, uh, even though he had been part of the Declaration of Human Rights, the drafting of the preamble to the Declaration of Human Rights. He was a racist. He looked down on black people and on Indians, and he could not bring himself to accept the principle of racial equality. So the the, the United Party was, in the end, electorally outflanked, and most of white opinion went over to the National Party, and, and the white electorate enthusiastically supported apartheid at the end of the day. Um, you identified yourself and your family as dissident Afrikaners. I have to admit that while I did a few um, protests in favor of divestment, sleeping in shanties, I don't know if you followed this at all on college campuses in the in the 1990s, mm-hmm. but um, I didn't realize that there was a cohesive group of dissident Afrikaners of an opposition who opposed the go- the apartheid government. What was that experience? And how, how did you, were you sort of born into this Yes. Resistance. My parents had been very much part of the first generation of white Afrikaans people to get a university education. But, and, and it's no credit to me, but during the 1960s, they came to be, I think even, even at the very beginning of the 1960s, they came to be uh, disgusted and appalled by what the National Party government was doing. I, I was not there at the time. This was before I was born. In my family's history, my mother was a teacher and she taught mostly in black and colored schools and became colleagues with um, black and colored teachers. 
who she became quite close friends with. And in a way, in that way, our family contacted uh, and, and, and uh, made connections with the black resistance against apartheid. So by the time that I was born, uh, that was 1965, my parents were, were quite firmly opposed to what was going on. By the time that I got my sort of understanding of the world, which was in the 1970s, that was during the very beginnings of the dawn of black consciousness in South Africa, um, the uh, murder of Steve Biko, the assassination of Rick Turner, all those things were going on. So it was a very confusing and a very um, odd time to you know, come of age as a young white teenager, suddenly realizing that the, the normal society around you was, was not something you could be part of. Um, I think my earliest memory if I may share this, was I was a small boy. I was probably six or seven years old. I could not read, and I saw a sign on a on a park bench, and I was trying to decipher it, and I asked my mom, well, what is the sign saying? And she refused to tell me. And later it turned out this was a sign was saying uh, white people only could sit on the bench, and that was the first time that I realized that we were part of a society that denied black people Society that denied black people such such basic rights and that rights and comforts, yeah. So so it is quite a, and I think I think the thing is that was what it's another thing that prompted me to write this this little tweet storm of mine is there was a a, a very powerful process for me which was when I was sixteen, seventeen, eighteen years old and realizing I am a conscript mm. in the army. I'm expected to. Um, to fight for this army and to kill black people who are standing up for the political rights. And you have to make a choice. And that choice is going to affect your career. That choice is going to affect whether or not you get certain kind of jobs. It's, a, it's, a, it's not just um, theory. It's not just signing a petition. It's actually a choice which has very real consequences. And it's a, a frightening process to, to resist an authoritarian state. This is the SADF, and you were a conscientious objector, more or less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was part of Or more than that, you burned your draft card. Uh, I was part of a wild and um, hot-headed young group of people who came to be known as the Cape Town 23. Mm. Uh, And we publicly declared that we were never going to um, fight for apartheid and that they could come and jail us if, if they wanted to. So... That was a, a defining and a very frightening moment for me, where in a way it was about all of us saying, with our bodies, you know, um, uh, we are not going to be part of this. Yeah. And, and I think in a way what I see happening in the States is m- many people on the edges of that society are, are discovering that and many people, many people who are not white have been in that place all their lives knowing what it's like to come up against the state that's willing to use repressive force against you. Mm-hmm. Uh, resisting an authoritarian government is, is not a game. Um, you know, I, I'm very struck by this debate that's happening in your society around civility. Yeah. Uh, and I completely understand um, the, the revulsion against the notion that you, you have to be civil in your position to, to such vile policies. But... That doesn't mean saying fuck Trump is the resistance. There's a lot of, of, of sort of wild talk in, on, on the left in the States that seems to be, to be quite 
performative. Uh, I, I think the, the real thing is going to be when people have to make real decisions about the choices in that li- in their lives that affect their future. Well, one of the, the choice, be, because most of the South Africans I know are in the United States, the choice that I'm mo- most familiar with was the, you know, so-called brain drain or the, the, the all the people, all the families that left in the 70s and 80s. Why didn't you make that choice? And why did other people make that choice? Well, I mean, we were South Africans and we were not going to leave. Um, mm-hmm. This is our country. Um, and even now in South Africa, we are facing very real problems. We now have a, a democratic government that is um, has got very serious problems of, of corruption. There's all kinds of hot-headed talk of expropriating uh, white land without compensation. There's a lot of anger. A lot of white people are wanting to to leave right now, but um, some of us have taken the decision that that we are South Africans and we are here to stay. So um, I'm not sure whether there's any kind of um, parallels with the the United the position in the United States. Well, I haven't heard much talk of leaving, but there's certainly a a big gap between those who are making some effort to resist even politically or through activism and most of, as you would say, white society who are trying to pretend it's not happening. That is what you cite in this thread as the, as some of the worst cognitive dissonance that really compounded the um, anguish of that time that there was, you say, Bobby McFerrin's Don't Worry, Be Happy was the, you know, sort of number one song on the charts in the, in the 80s and 90s, was it? And that this sort of emphasis as you were passing through road bo- roadblocks or contending with riot cops while your parents' friends were being arrested, s- sort of um, monotonous yeah. insistence that everything was all right. That seems to be around right now. And even to say it's not all right is to risk, yeah, violating the the don't worry, be happy norm. Don't Um, don't worry, be happy was the one big hit. And the other one was Midnight Oil song, Beds Are Burning. I don't know whether that ever charted in the the US, how can we sleep (laughs) while our beds are burning, which was much more close to the temper of the times. Um, I I, I don't know. I think in a way, the, the the risks and the stakes are very different in the United States and the U.S. Mm-hmm. In, 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 in the U.S., it is people of color, immigrants, and poorer women who are in the crosshairs and whose reproduct, re- reproductive rights are being, being threatened. Mm-hmm. And in a way, it's, it's what's a little bit scary, scarier in the U.S. is that it might be very much easier for a right-wing government to sort of divide up freedom and to create a, a molly-coddled group of relatively privileged white people who feel everything is fine while everybody else's rights get violated. So I think that's quite a, a frightening procedure. In, in South Africa, in the end, what happened is that everybody realized either things have to change or we're all going to go down. Um, I'm not sure whether the, that moment will arrive in the same way in, in the United States. It seems to me that the hope that you can go back to a sort of golden age of the Clintons or, or of Obama is is a mistake. Um, I think um, you have to find new strategies and ways of not trying to pass over differences, but perhaps win some battles and force some issues to resolution might be what is required. 
Um, so activism, grassroots activism, up to and including, you know, real agitation, um, not to say clashes and rioting, it would be part of it. Another would be simply political solutions and voting. Um, what about media? Um, I know that there was obviously our president has threatened the media and has um, complained bitterly about it. And in some cases threatened Jeff Bezos possibly because he owns yeah. the Washington post, but South Africa really did suppress yeah. the media. Um, yeah. What, how did that in your memory, because you had studied the, you, you've now studied the media in the fifties, forties and fifties, but then wh yeah. how did that transition happen? And how did people get news in that time, including you? Well, well, this the, the 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 processes of political change were very different in South Africa. A, a very large part of the struggle happened off stage and not in the media, but it happened through popular uprising in the townships, in communities that were in a way not mediated at all. It happened without the help of newspapers. Um, a lot of the organising was was face to face house to house, etc. The alternative media played a very important role. There were some newspapers that have played a very important role, particularly in getting the word out to the international context. And we could even get some Americans to be part of divestment campaigns, etc., which was of immense importance. Uh, I think was it important? The, I couldn't tell. It's very important. It, yeah. In a way, what happened was that apartheid got to be made unworkable, partly because of poor black South Africans rising up against it and simply making the townships ungovernable, mm -hmm. and secondly, because um, the economic context of apartheid became insupportable, mm -hmm. and the business community which in the 1960s and 1970s had been quite comfortable with apartheid, came to believe that this political situation had to be, quote-unquote, normalized, as people would put it. Mm -hmm. So the media was a very important part of that process. But we are today in a very different media environment. Um, what happens in the, in the Washington Post and the New York Times um, is of of less importance when you have sort of large sections of the population that believe that Hillary Clinton has been running a pedophile ring out of a pizza restaurant in downtown Washington. Yeah. yeah. So, so in a way, who decides what is news and what is true is a very much more contested terrain. And that is uh, uncharted at the moment. Uh, and that's a very alarming part of the, of the, of the scene we're seeing at the moment. Um, uh, in the United States, in the UK, and elsewhere. And I'm going to let you go because I know it's so late there. But uh, one of the 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 figure that struck me most in your thread was 40 years. Um, yeah. That it lasts a long time, and it, even even in the case of South Africa, it's been what 25 years um, yeah. since the end of apartheid, and and the country's still struggling with the, its consequences yeah. and after effects. Most people flagged your threat as as terrifying, and I did too. Yeah. But there's something, it adds less hysteria and more rigor, yeah. I think, to the historical analysis of what's oh. happening in the United States. And I'm very grateful to you for that. Yeah, and I would just say, stop in, in these moments. The question is not how to return to what was. The question is to try to discern 
what is coming, what is trying to be born here. And it may be a very different kind of political dispensation. I think the the geopolitical fix that delivered a sort of welfare states for parts of the American working class in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, that new deal, it will never come back. Mm. The, the, what is the viable and sustainable future for which uh, Democrats and excluded people and marginalized people can fight now. That, I think, is the, the question uh, to which uh, all of us want an answer. Andres Dutoy, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It was great to talk to you. Hey, I've got two points of business. First, are you a member of Slate Plus? Because by joining Slate Plus, you can get ad-free podcasts, bonus segments, and all kinds of other cool stuff. So go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. That's slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus to join the great Slate Plus. And my second point of business is, are you following us on Twitter? We're at Real Trumpcast. That's at Real Trumpcast. Follow us on Twitter for all things Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to today's show. 